your goodness, because of your grace, because of your love, that people would come to know you, come to honor you. We ask that you mold us, you shape us, and break us if need be, God, in order to be your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. We're having a bit of a role reversal this morning. Sam has sung for us. Thank you so much. Um, and I'm up here preaching. For those who are visiting with us, I'm the college pastor here at First Colony Christian Church. Um, and so if you're here, uh, welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, well, Christmas is upon us. The time of celebrating the advent of our Lord, <coughs> celebrating his birth. But perhaps more importantly, we celebrate the time when we declare holy war on our neighbors in a Christmas decorating battle to the death. You guys know what I'm talking about. <laughs> That's my house on the right. It's not really. Whoa. Uh, no. no, not seriously. Not seriously. So, tis the season for Christmas light wars. Okay, now I, I'm proud to say that this year my husband and I just bought a home. So this is our first Christmas season. Yeah. Uh, to uh, have Christmas lights. So I was very excited. We got our own, you know, real tree, all the traditions. And we put out, I mean, we had a very nice, very classy, elegant display. I was very proud. Um, and, and for a while, we, we secured the, uh, the, the top seat, the rain, in our neighborhood. And it wasn't just because we were the only people that put up lights. Okay. It was, it was a classy establishment. We had the, the walkway lights. We had the walkway. You know, it was, it was good. But sadly, our rain came to an end. Because our next door neighbors decided to get in on the race. And they pulled out the big guns. Okay. They, they really did. Uh, walkway lights, roof lights, pre-lit reindeer. There was not an inch left of that grass. Okay. It was littered with stuff. And then, just to add insult to injury. Okay. Uh, yesterday we pull in and they keep on adding stuff. It's like they're not done. I'm like, come on. This is embarrassing for us now. So we pull into the driveway, and their newest addition is whitewashed pumpkins. They literally took their pumpkins that they decorated for Thanksgiving, painted them white, put it out. I'm like, really? Okay, who can top that? I just, who can top that? I wasn't prepared. I will be next year. Okay. <laughs> I will be next year. That's all I gotta say. We do have one other neighbor that put up lights, and it was, it was sad. It was just really, really sad. I mean, they kind of, it looked like they threw the lights on the bushes, kind of wrapped this tree. So I felt a, at least a bit of, you know, pride in that we beat that guy. All right. <laughs> I'm a close second. Those pumpkins better look out next year. <laughs> you guys know you do it too. I'm not the only one. But uh, sad thing is I'm kind of serious. This is really sad. Um, wow. So I need to listen to the sermon that I'm about to preach today. So let's all turn. Uh, to Luke 18, Lord, Lord help me, uh, verse 9, verses 9 through 14 is where we will be today, but I'd like to begin by first reading the quote that's on the top of your bulletin um, by Leo Tolstoy. This has been quoted by others such as Gandhi, kind of get the same meaning across, but the quote reads, everyone thinks of changing the world, but where, oh where, are those who think of changing themselves? Mm. Yeah, busted. Uh, I, I would think that we're, if we're honest with ourselves, we probably are guilty of this. 
more often than we would like. Uh, that we look at the world and we say, man, that's screwed up. But why is that screwed up? Well, then we look back at ourselves and we see, am I that much better? Am I that much better? Now, this can be comically demonstrated in one of two ways in our <coughs> churches today. The first I like to call the so-and-so complex. <clears throat> so, you're sitting, you're listening to a sermon, and it's hitting home. You're just like, man, this is, this is a great sermon. And you think to yourself, oh, such a great sermon. I wish so-and-so were here. Man, I need to hear it. I need to hear this sermon. We've all thought it. Don't lie. All right. The second method, uh, it's a little more subtle. It's called the church elbow. Okay? So the pastor's making a point, and uh, he's just said something, and you get the, uh-huh. <laughs> Buddy, did you hear that? Just in case you didn't notice, that one was for you. Okay? This has a lot of variations, all right? You've got the church stare. It's like off to the side a bit. Mm-hmm. You have a church nod. The church pointed finger. That's for the real bold. It's like... <laughs> Sometimes a combination of all three. But suffice it to say, I have been both the giver and receiver of the church elbow. Um, and so some of you might in fact be doing it right now. You're thinking, oh man, I wish so-and-so were here because he always gives me the church elbow. Dang it. <laughs> oh. Busted. Busted. Okay. It seems uh, today, as we've been going through our series uh, of Jesus' parables, that the purpose, a lot of times, with Jesus' stories is to catch us, is to turn the tables on us, that just as soon as we, we've made the assumption, we know who the bad guy is, we know, oh man, that's so-and-so, I know he's talking about him, gotcha. He catches us. He turns the tables on our expectations. And he's going to do this today in Luke 18. Uh, so today, as we read, I would ask that we would let ourselves uh, be allowed to get caught, that we would have our eyes opened and that we would let uh, the scripture place a mirror in front of us and expose our sins uh, so that we may respond with a heart of repentance. So if you have your Bibles, if you don't, there is a Bible in front of you that you can uh, take out and read. Luke 18, starting in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, declared right, part of the family, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. A little light reading for today. Um, So here we have the story of two men, one religious, the other irreligious. And before we start with our familiar stereotype, or caricature of a self-righteous Pharisee, let's take a look at his prayer. What, what really can we say about it? The first thing that I would note is that it is a theocentric or God-centric prayer. It is a prayer of thanksgiving. What does he say? I thank you that I am not like other men. So if we think about this, 
he is giving God credit for the lot in his life. It would be similar to a modern example of, I'm thankful that I was raised in a Christian home, that I did not have to lead a life down a path of sin, that I did not have to engage in a morally um, compromising profession. God, you've done that. I thank you, God, that I am not like other men. In fact, there was a similar common prayer that Jewish men prayed in the temple, and it went a little something like this. I thank you, God, that I am not a slave, that I am not a Gentile, and that I am not a woman. Now, I seem to have just, you know, smashed my point. Yeah, no, no. Uh, sorry, ladies. <clears throat> but let's think about this. Let's, let's unpack this prayer. This is not an arrogant, smug prayer. What is he saying? Thank you, God, for my freedom, that I'm not a slave. Thank you that I am part of the chosen people of God, okay, that I am in, that I am a part of your family. And thank you for the opportunity of my gender. Let's face it, women, we didn't have much opportunity back then. Sorry, it wasn't a good time for us. So he, he is thankful for his lot, because who has given him that? God. Okay. So we don't want to flatten this guy out as self-righteous. We see that maybe a modern equivalent would be uh, a testimony saying, thank you that I have received a blessing, that I've been raised in a Christian home. And for that, we rightfully give God thanks. We rightfully give God thanks. Now, who could fault us for that? Who could fault us for that? The most that can be said is that he is confident that his deeds are good. He is confident that he has the right theology. He is not arrogantly praying for everyone to hear. If you look in your text, that he stands by himself. Remember that the common stance during this time was to stand up, arms and head raised. So nothing out of the ordinary there. Okay? Um, and he's not being arrogant. And just so we're clear... To the first century audience, the Pharisee is the good guy. The Pharisee is the hero. Um, most of the Pharisees were thought to be successors to the Maccabees. The Maccabees are your ultimate war heroes. They fought against oppression and injustice during Antiochus Epiphanes' reign. Okay, and so they are the good guys. These are the guys who are standing up for what's right, you know, in our, in our world. Now, his prayer continues to list the good things that he's doing. <clears throat> and again, we can't argue that they're not good. Now, also, he fasts twice a week. Jews are only required to fast once a year during the Day of Atonement, but he does it twice a week. For those of you who have fasted, that's a tough thing to do. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a tough thing to do. <clears throat> not only that, but he ties everything that he has. So he not only obeys the law, he goes above and beyond it. This is varsity spirituality here. I mean, he's on the varsity team. There are not too many churches who do a 10-week studies of fasting and tithing, okay? There's a reason for that. What, what is the thing that we like to hold on to? Our money and our food. <laughs> I mean, and especially in America, we've got a fast food restaurant available to us on every corner. So when we're trying to be wise about what we eat, it's very hard to lose control of that, right? But the Pharisee, in a moving display of self-sacrifice, he says, this is your money. And this is your body. Do with it what you will. So do we kind of like this guy? Right? I mean, maybe we're a bit surprised. It's like, oh, kind of like this guy. He doesn't seem like a bad guy. Right? So beware of caricatures. Beware of stereotypes. They're one-dimensional, as I said before. And also, when we compare ourselves to a stereotype, it's really easy for us to come out smelling like a rose. You know? 
So it's, uh, man, I, I'm not like that guy. I wouldn't stand up and like tell everybody how awesome I was. I would. I'm better than that. I wouldn't do that. It's really easy for us to come out on top that way. But the story's not over. The story's not over. Read verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The word for merciful here could also be appeased. So they're in the temple. They have likely, most likely given a sacrifice, an offering, and he is saying, be appeased. Atone for my sins, please. He cries out to God, have mercy. So let's talk about the tax collector, because the meaning of the parable hangs on our understanding of who the tax collector is and how he was viewed in this society. So to give a little background, uh, Jerusalem right now is under Roman rule, okay? So Rome is a large empire with vast armies and vast projects, okay, building their roads and whatnot. And these armies and projects need funding. Well, how do they get their funding? By taxing the people that they conquered, okay? So it was through taxation, and empires don't stay big by being nice, okay? Empires stay big through fear and through brutality. So Rome is a brutal, pagan nation, okay, that limits their religious freedoms, their political freedoms, and murders people just to make sure you know who's boss. And now they're demanding taxes. Now they're demanding that they pay to fund the cross that they're hanging their buddy up on. But the way that they do this is they use the people that they conquer to collect. Now who would want that job? Who would sign up for that job? It would be someone who's probably unpatriotic and unscrupled. They don't really care about morality, because if not, I don't think they'd be able to sleep at night. Okay? So they enlist one of their fellow, one of their conquered people. So your fellow citizen, your buddy, comes to your house and he says, it's time to pay. It's time to pay Rome. Most likely it's going to King Herod, but he's a puppet king that Rome has installed, so it's basically the same thing. Uh, and he says, it's time to collect. Now, the thing about Rome is they don't really care how much the collector charges. So he can actually jack up the price, take his profit. So long as Rome gets their cut, they don't care. So he comes to you. People were taxed about 35 to 40% of their wealth. These are peasants, okay? They're taxed about 40% uh, of their annual income. And if you can't pay, then he reports you. And they might take your home in order to cover the bill. And if that doesn't cover it, then they'll sell your children into slavery. How's that? So this is the guy. This is the tax collector. Um, I'm trying to think of a modern equivalent uh, that would help us understand the, the hatred that people would have towards tax collectors. Um, and, and the best that I can come up with, the best that I can do is, let's imagine that uh, an Islamic terrorist group, okay, so Al-Qaeda, they invade America, and they, they've killed everybody in, in leadership, and they're the, new, they're the new power. Goodbye, democracy. Goodbye, you know, checks and balances, justice. It's whatever they say goes, okay? So they limit our religious and political freedoms. And then they charge us and tax us, and it doesn't matter what price. There's no reason for it. 
They're just going to charge you an amount, okay? And it goes to funding <coughs> the bombs that kill your citizens. We wouldn't like that. I think it's safe to say we wouldn't like that. Now imagine that your fellow neighbor over here, your fellow American, says, huh, he sees this horrific situation and sees that he can make a profit out of it. He can actually make a pretty decent living off of your suffering. So he enlists to become the collector. He comes to your door and he says, pay up. Pay up or I'll report you. Who would we hate more? Let's think about this. Who would we hate more? Will we hate the Islamic regime, the Islamic terrorist regime, or will we hate the American trader who's simply doing it just to get a profit? He builds a mansion with your money while you lose your house and your kid. I don't think that we have nice things to say about traitors. Have I offended you enough yet? <laughs> Man, Jesus was bold, I'll give him that. He was bold. So he likes to do this, likes to shock us. So tax collector, let's rewind 2,000 years, unquestionably the bad guy. Unquestionably the bad guy of this story. Okay? He's filling his own pockets. Blood's on this guy's hands. Now, wouldn't you feel confident that you were just a little more righteous than he is? Be honest. Wouldn't you feel like you were a bit better than this guy? Yeah, I would. Some of you are thinking, I feel like this is a trap. <laughs> like she's, she's setting me up for something. I do. I make a great case, don't I? Well, you're right. It's a trap. We're busted. Because verse 14, contrary to what we might expect of who is justified, who is saved, Jesus tells us it is the tax collector, the enemy, the traitor. Not, and, bonus, rather than the other. Not the good guy. Not the guy who's serving God. He is saved. So the kingdom of God not only seems to discourage the world's social evaluation game of who's, who's good, who's not, but pronounces judgment. Pronounces judgment on the social evaluation game. Okay. And social hierarchy. Proverbs 14, 12 said that there is a way that seems right to a man, but it, it is, its end is the way of death. So scripture over and over again repeatedly tells us that our assumptions regarding social and religious status could have deadly consequences. Jesus is saying here, don't assume. Don't judge. Be careful. So why is the Pharisee not justified? What is his crime? You can imagine the audience of the first century screaming this question, right? What did he do? Let's go a few verses down to 15. Jesus, uh, Luke kind of sets up three stories in succession that give uh, the same theme. And so two other stories that we're going to look at today are right after the tax collector and the Pharisee. The first, in verse 15, says that now they were bringing even infants to him that they might touch him. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them to them and said, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, 
Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Shall not enter it. So how does a child receive things? How does an infant receive things? What happens when an infant is hungry? Cries. What happens when it needs to be changed? It cries. It cries. And it hopes that it's heard, right? Because there's nothing, I mean, if it's not able to unstrap and, and lay on the changing table and, and get the job done, right? And we can't do it. You're looking at the most helpless in a society, children. The only hope that they have is to cry out to their parents and that their parents are not evil and will hear their needs, okay? That will attend to their needs. So here we have, uh, what does a tax collector do here? Let's look back, okay? What does he do? He cries out, and he hopes to be heard. That's all he can do. There is no mercy for this guy under the law. There is no way that he can be considered justified, that he can be considered in, okay? First of all, if he's to even do that, he has to quit his job. Under the law, he's got to quit his job. And then he has to pay everyone back that he has cheated. Plus a fifth. I think it's safe to say that he would probably not remember all the people that he's cheated. And even then, he wouldn't be able to afford to pay them back. There's absolutely no hope for this guy to receive mercy according to the law. There's, he, he is at the bottom. This guy would have no, no confidence whatsoever in his own righteousness. None. He understands that. He gets it. Okay. Second story is of the rich young ruler. And the ruler asked him, this is beginning in verse 18, <clears throat> Good teacher, what must I do to inherit life from the age to come? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely wealthy. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? This honorable guy who's kept all the commandments and has wealth, if this guy isn't in, who can be saved? Listen how he responds, verse 27. But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. What is impossible with men is possible with God. Again, our only hope that these stories seem to hit at is for God's mercy. That our state is impossible for us to fix. No matter for the Pharisee or the tax collector. We are all hopeless. We are all without hope. And it seems that Jesus knew that those who had material, social, and religious wealth commonly had a hard time accepting this truth. Okay? And it turns out that the poor, that their acknowledgement of their own weakness, turns out to be their greatest strength their greatest advantage in the kingdom. In third world countries, I'm thinking of India particularly, 
uh, it is often the poor and the outcasts who convert to Christianity uh, by the thousands. They convert to Christianity. Uh, and, and we look at that and we're like, wow, what, what is going on there? What is going on there? Why, why are these people just coming by the thousands when, you know, in America, it's, it's like we feel like it's dead here? Well, I think it has to do with this parable here. I think it's hard for people who have wealth to give it up and to realize that they, in fact, aren't wealthy. Imagine that you've been told all your life that you are untouchable, that you are worthless, a mistake. But now you hear a story about a God who reaches down to save you, who loves you, who took your sin on himself so that we might be part of the family of God, the family of the king, his daughter, his son. Will we really pass that offer by in scorn? How dare you? How dare you say I need that? We would say, oh my gosh, thank you. There's no hope for us. There's no hope for us. Perhaps this is the truth that the Beatitudes are getting at. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the mourning. Blessed are the sick. Why are all these people blessed? Some people have called it lucky are the unlucky. Because it's hitting at this truth that when we have nothing, Jesus means everything. Material, social, and religious wealth are viewed as potential obstacles for entry into the kingdom. Now the response of the Pharisee here is not to stop doing these good things that he's doing and to start sinning like the tax collector. That's to miss the point as well. Um, but the proper response involves a change in perspective, an attitude adjustment, if you will. So there was a PE coach who um, was teaching a new game to some elementary kids. So the first period, the game, uh, some of you may be familiar with it. I think it's pretty popular. Done at a lot of youth camps. You tie a string that has a balloon at the end to the kid's ankle. And the goal of the game is for you to stomp on everybody else's balloon and for you to be the, the last balloon standing, okay? Um, balloons can't stand, but you know what I mean. So to be the final one with your <coughs> balloon intact, okay? So she teaches them this game, and they are they're going at it with vigor. They're body checking people into the walls. I mean, they're stepping and they're bruises, crying, anger, and the last person standing celebrates. He's like, yeah, I did it. I did it. Okay. Now, second period is her resource group, or the kids with special needs. So she explains the same game to them, okay? She tells them the rules. Um, and they, they seem to get it, they start doing it, but they, they seem to be doing some things differently. She notices that instead of running away from other people, they, they are standing and bringing their balloon around in front of people and letting the other person stomp on it. And once they stomp on it, they start clapping. They say, yeah, you did it, you did it, okay? And as, as soon as the last balloon is done, they celebrate. And they're like, we did it, we, we popped all the balloons. <laughs> And so here we have two different attitudes. They got the same instructions for the game, but the first group made it about competition, the second about cooperation. Who had the right perspective? Who had the right perspective? Living as kingdom people means that we need to adopt a new way of thinking, a new way of thinking about ourselves, about God, and about each other. And the kingdom that Jesus is establishing will be nonsensical to us, unless we accept two truths. The first truth is found in several scriptures and is what I call the prophetic diagnosis. 
So in Isaiah 53, 6, it says that we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Paul would say in Romans 23, 23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the prophetic diagnosis is that no one has escaped the taint of sin. No one has escaped the taint of sin. The second truth that we must realize is the divine response. The divine response is that God, despite our sin, lavishes us with grace, mercy, and blessing. Romans 5, 8 would say, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is viewing people through the lens of the cross, that you and I are on even footing, that the ground is even at the foot of the cross. We are all sinners. There's no room to judge. There's no more enemies anymore. The enemy turned out to be us. Okay? And that God is the God who does the impossible, who saves us, who gives us hope. God responds to our failure with mercy, not judgment. And finally, recognition of our moral poverty is necessary for the reception of God's grace. If you'll turn with me to Psalm 51. read it aloud with me, but it's a bit long, so I'm not going to ask you guys to do that. But this psalm here is a psalm of David. Particularly, it's a psalm that he wrote after Nathan the prophet has confronted him about his adulterous affair with Bathsheba, to give us a bit of perspective on what's going on here. He's just been confronted with his sin, and he writes this psalm. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. There was a pastor who had just started... Uh, to take the pulpit at this church after uh, the previous pastor had resigned after 20 years. This was a beloved pastor who had uh, done a lot of good things for the church, so he had really big shoes to fill, was a bit intimidated about making this his first uh, lead pastor position. Uh, and everyone was, was okay 
Everyone seemed to treat him well and to give him grace as he was kind of learning the ropes, except for one woman. <laughs> that, that one woman uh, who seemed to never be pleased with what he did, never agree with the sermons he preached. After Sunday, there would always be an email. After a board meeting, a phone call. And he constantly would have to appease and, and try to exude patience with this woman. Uh, and so he is preaching a sermon, preaching a sermon on forgiveness and acceptance this one Sunday, and he sees her, he spots her in the, in the chair, and she has her familiar scowl on her face. And so he's thinking to himself, getting another email, getting another email today. And after the sermon is done, she walks up to him, and he's like, oh man, right after the sermon? Like, this is, this is even worse than what he's expecting. So he's praying for patience as he's about to walk up to her and shake her hand. Um, and she comes up to him and she says, Pastor, it was a great sermon today. It was a really great sermon. It was just, it was eloquent. It was so poignant. And I just, I hope that they were listening today. <laughs> really? Really? I mean, he's just thinking, okay, calmness, patience. And so this is a woman who doesn't have the right perspective, okay? This is not a woman of a contrite and broken heart who understands, okay, that we all mess up and maybe doesn't have as much grace for other people as she should. Now, in light of the recognition of our moral poverty, bragging just becomes silly, doesn't it? Boasting is just ridiculous. When we realize that we have uh, an indebtedness to Jesus and the cross, the social game just loses all of its loses all of its esteem. Comparing and measuring ourselves loses value. And when rightfully understood, the kingdom changes our attitude about ourselves. Jesus has held up the mirror, and we've all come up short. Our only hope is to cry out and be heard. The kingdom changes our attitude towards each other. There is now no need to compare each other. There is no room for judgment. God does not play favorites, so why should we? The social evaluation game has been done away with, and status is dictated by a new identity, based on the faithfulness of Jesus. Again, not anything that we've done. No room for boasting. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, the kingdom changes our perspective about God. He's a God of mercy, the champion of the poor, brokenhearted, sick, and mourning. He loves to shower extravagant grace on the unlikeliest of people. He rejoices over one sinner who repents versus 99 righteous. His goodness should rightfully shock us. When we think about this story and who he's bestowing grace on, I think we can understand that. I think we can understand how God's grace and God's mercy are so extravagant that they don't make sense. We almost want to say, whoa, calm down a bit. You know, it's okay. You don't have to let everybody in. Just, you know, it's okay. Maybe not that guy. Because if I'm associated with this dude, I don't want to sit next to him and be associated with him. But God's kingdom is not exclusive. For all who come to seek him, he says, come on in. Come on in. Now, uh, Mike had done a sermon on the parable of the great feast. And if we remember that story, 
God sends out his invites, right? He sends out his invitations, and uh, not everybody comes. They're busy. They've got other things to do. And he says, okay, forget this. Just go out and yell. Yell in the streets, and whoever comes is eating. Whoever comes, they're participating at the table. And if you don't want to sit next to that person, you might not have a seat. We're reminded again of the prodigal son who stands far off. Who isn't expecting his grace, doesn't feel he deserves it. And the father runs to him and kills the fatted calf, says, let's eat. Now we also remember the elder brother of that story, who is rightfully justified in being upset. Because I've sat here and I've done everything right. Your little rebellious kid comes home, you throw a party? What's wrong with you? God's grace is extravagant. It wasn't so much that the religious leaders were doing wrong, but they were reacting wrongly towards Jesus' kingdom announcement. God's kingdom was including people who you and I would be quite okay with excluding. But Luke's gospel in particular seems to point out that over and over again, God's mercy and his kingdom advancement aren't exclusive. So the last story we're going to look at is Luke 10. So turn there. <clears throat> Starting in verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And her sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, remember that point, and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Here again we have the one who is serving and the one who is sitting. Now, something that we might not realize uh, what is going on here is that Mary has... Um, committed an actual social faux pas here, like a pretty big one. Um, she is sitting at the Lord's feet, listening to his teaching. Who sat at the Lord's feet? His disciples, his all-male disciples. This is, this is a boys' club over here, this is the girls' place in the kitchen. Martha says she's realizing what her sister is doing. She's sitting, she's going in with the men. She says, whoa. Back in the kitchen. That's, I'm embarrassed for you. Get back here. This isn't where you're supposed to be. And what does Jesus say? She's chosen well. And it's not going to be taken away from her. Hmm. God's mercy and his grace are not excluded based upon gender, race, social status. Jesus comes to Zacchaeus, another tax collector, goes to his house, and what does he say? Behold, salvation has come to this house, because he too is a child of Abraham, for God has come to seek and save the lost. Jesus' stories catch us in our misguided assumptions and attitudes. 
and invite us to join his radical kingdom movement. And I'll close with this. Some final questions for us to think about. Let's ask ourselves, what is our attitude towards the tax collectors in our lives? Do we play the social games of the Pharisees? Do we really understand that the ground is even at the foot of the cross? Has that been put to the test? On the inside of your bulletin, uh, on the side where there's the notes, we've been doing a kingdom implementation every week uh, in the hopes that as kingdom people we would be continued to be shaped uh, by God and be uh, representative of his grace. So there are two things that I would hope that we would do this week. I would ask that we would read Psalm 51 every morning, uh, that we would pray that God would create in us a proper understanding of our moral poverty and also of his grace. Ask yourself, the second thing, ask yourself throughout the day, does my attitude toward the social outcasts reflect the kingdom of God or the kingdom of man? I know that I am guilty um, of judging and assuming things about a person when I have no right to. And I would hope and I would pray that you and I would be convicted as we learn more about Jesus and about the stories that he tells that we would get a more accurate picture of who God is and what we're supposed to be like. That we are an extension of his love and his grace towards people, an extension of his blessing towards other people in our lives. It's a difficult task. There are people in our lives, we all have them, who are hard to love, hard to bless. But God calls us to do that. Let's pray. God, you are merciful when you could have brought judgment. You are gracious when you didn't have to be. God, you have extended blessing even beyond that. You have gone above and beyond the requirements of love. And that is its nature, God. It overflows into our lives. I ask that we will be moved and shapen by that love, by that grace, by our own knowledge of our sin and our shortcomings, God, so that we do not judge and we do not assume that the ground is even at the foot of the cross, God. You have made us new, you and you alone. Create in us a broken and contrite heart, a moldable heart, God, that you can move in and stir and awaken in us your heart, your eyes, that we look on the world with a new perspective, a new perspective towards the social outcasts, towards the unlovable, and towards ourselves and towards you, God. We thank you so much for the blessing. We're unworthy of it, and we're overwhelmed. It's in your precious son's name that we pray. Amen. Now is the time in our service where we will uh, participate in communion. Uh, so we do this every week here at First Colony. Uh, and it's an act of obedience to our Lord. Uh, and after the past.